Hello, and welcome to On Your Left, the politics podcast that's probably to your left. My name is Katrina Ames, and I use she, them pronouns. I'm Nirali Shath. I use she, her pronouns. We are in your uh, podcast feeds every Wednesday, so please hit follow if you haven't already, and please share the pod with all of your friends. I think we make a really good podcast. If you think we make a good podcast, then I'm sure your friends will appreciate your excellent taste. So please share. But also, this does not include the next two Wednesdays. We are taking time off for the holidays. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Christmas Eve Eve and New Year's Eve Eve are very important times of resting. (laughs) Hey, Christmas Eve Eve is also Festivus, which is the festival for the rest of us. And that's very important. (laughs) If you want to support our podcast in 2021 and for forever, when we come back with, I guess, a season two, uh, we have a Patreon. And you can support us at patreon.com slash onyourleftpod. Our Patreon page is really cool. Uh, you should definitely check it out. It's got mangoes all over it. We know you're all just here for the mango news. So before we jump into the main topic, which is publishing, uh, let's talk some COVID updates. I think for the very first time all year, we have all positive COVID news. Oh my god. Starting with our international news, a UK grandmother has become the very first person in the world to be given the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine as part of a mass vaccination program in the UK. Margaret Keenan, who was just about to turn 91, said the injection she received was the best early birthday present. It should be noted also that the second person to receive the vaccine was named William Shakespeare, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like he's really gone through his incredibly long life being like, yes, this is my real <laughs> legal name. <laughs> I wonder what what this William Shakespeare did during quarantine, because the last William Shakespeare wrote a play <laughs> during quarantine. No, well, too much pressure. Too much too pressure. Much pressure. Yeah, I feel bad for this man. But you know what? He got He got the second vaccine in the world after Margaret Keaton, so... I don't feel too bad for him. It seems like he is now in a position to have a much safer life uh, over the next several months. I'm very happy for him, as well as everyone else, because in domestic news, the Food and Drug Administration has authorized Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use within the United States. So this means the United States is the sixth country to approve the vaccine after Britain, Bahrain, Canada, Saudi Arabia, and Mexico. Pfizer has a deal with the U.S. government to supply 100 million doses of the vaccine by next March. And under that agreement, this is this is the best, best news ever. The vaccine will be free to the public. Which is... Massive. This is the thing I was stressing about the most once the vaccine came to be, is accessibility to the vaccine. Will only rich people be able to take it? Because we know the state of healthcare in the United States, it's in shambles. So um, I'm I'm so stoked that it's free and that everyone who is able to get it, who is not immunocompromised, um, we'll be able to get it. Um, and we should say this vaccine requires you to get two doses of the vaccination. You need a shot, and then uh, I believe it's three weeks later, you need a second booster shot. 
Mm -hmm. 50 million doses. That uh, is... That is less than, like, 20% of the overall population. But 50 million people getting vaccinated is more than enough to cover every single healthcare worker in the United States. Yeah, it's going to the people who need it the most first. Which is, yeah, it's the most important thing. So, basically, in the United States, 3 million people are expected to receive a vaccination in the coming week. Um... And an estimate of 20 million people are being vaccinated by the end of this year, by the end of 2020. What a way to go out of this hell year. That is just... It's so many people. It's its so many people who, who won't have to be afraid of going in to work sick. Um, I mean, that's just... It's estimated that there are about um, 18 million healthcare workers in the United States, mm-hmm. and this would this would get all of them. And yes, we'll probably still vaccinate the very old uh, people living in and working in nursing homes and start roll out of that as well. But there are so many people who will be able to go to work without fear, treating COVID-19 patients, so that more of them can survive, and possibly treating other patients without fear of giving them the disease. And just a reminder, the virus is still very much here and still very much bad. Um, Just because the vaccine was approved does not mean you can go out and do whatever the hell you want now. Even with the vaccine, we will be relying on people to continue to social distance, continue to wear masks, um, continue to wash your hands, please, dear God, nobody quit doing that. Y'all were nasty. Um, we need you all to do all of these things, especially to protect people who will not be able to get the vaccine. It is going to take time for everyone to get the vaccine. Even then, um, pregnant women, um, will have to opt into the vaccine. It has not been tested on people who are pregnant. Um, it has not been tested or recommended to give the vaccine to people under the age of 16, but they are letting it up to the parents and the pediatricians to decide um, because they cannot test on patients that are children uh, with these vaccinations. We, so we just don't have data yet. So, and in addition to that, we have all of the immunocompromised people, all of the people with you know cancer who are undergoing chemotherapy and have compromised immune systems that will not be able to handle a vaccine right now because they are being treated for other deadly diseases. We need to get vaccinated, we need to continue to wear masks, we need to social distance, we need to wash our hands, and we need to do all of that for a long period of time to ensure that all of us make it through this. We will get through this. It's just, we're in the home stretch now. Just, like, keep doing the best you can. We're so close to this nightmare being over. We're so close. Over 290,000 people have died um, of COVID-19 this year. Um, That is much more death than anyone expected. Um, It is much more than the number of people that would have died if this virus hadn't come about. And we know that there is an end in sight. We know we are going to be able to keep people safe soon and we will be able to rely on 
herd immunity through mass inoculation of a vaccine instead of just letting all the vulnerable people die off. Everyone who we can protect now is a win. Every single one of these deaths is going to be preventable. So we need to work to prevent it now. So um, speaking of nightmares ending, Joe Biden, he's the president-elect now. That he is, that he is, and for the past several weeks, it seems that we've gotten the news that Joe Biden has won the election almost every day. (laughs) Just every day. The Supreme Court on Tuesday, December 8th, 2020, refused a launch-out request from Pennsylvania Republicans to overturn Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s victory in the state, ensuring that my vote counted, that all of our votes counted, um, and <laughs> rest assured, Pennsylvania Republican Party, I have your number, and most of you are up for election in two years. Ooh. Katrina, was that a threat? Yes, yes, that was a threat. <laughs> I would be scared if I were a Pennsylvania Republican going up against Katrina Ames. So, uh, the Supreme Court's order was one sentence long. There were no dissents to the order. Everyone agrees that Joe Biden won the state of Pennsylvania. I feel like that must have been like really hard news for Donald Trump because he thought he gave three people Supreme Court seats so that he could steal this election and then was very surprised to find out that instead of him using them, they were all using him to gain massive amounts of power that will affect us for several decades to come. Uh, And he's not the president. These people in the Republican Party who cozied up to Donald Trump to get uh, seats in the Supreme Court and whatever. They don't They don't care about Donald Trump. They care about pushing their own agendas. Yeah. So the second Donald Trump is no longer useful to them, they, they threw him out. And that's not to say that our concerns that uh, they would turn to the courts to steal the election were unfounded. We saw several attempts um, to use the courts to steal our elections, to invalidate our votes, to overturn voting laws after the election. Mm -hmm. Um, But President Trump and his Republican allies have lost about 50 challenges to the presidential election in the past five weeks. That is right. That is five zero losses just over and over and over. The thing is, Donald Trump didn't give these justices any room to even write a dissent you know like if it were close if if there was you know any actual you know bad stuff happening like voter fraud or you know all this stuff with the counting and the poll watching and stuff like they would have a leg to stand on but there is no leg to stand on so they can't they can't do anything about it. It was an overwhelming victory uh, for mm-hmm. us and a disappointing loss, an overwhelming loss for Donald Trump, um, both in the election and then the 50 lawsuits after the election. Um, and Trump hasn't come close to overturning the results of a single state's election. Not even once. 
he tried personally calling election officials of like at the local level. And he still didn't get them to overturn the results, let alone the results in enough states that he would need to win the presidency and steal it from uh, President-elect Biden and also the American people. I'm just, I'm like so bored of this man at this point. He's been begging us for ages and I'm like, you lost. Accept it. I feel like he's not looking on the bright side. He will have so much more time to golf. He won't have to read boring security documents that he doesn't really pay attention to anyways. I mean, I bet a bunch of people around him will stop getting COVID. Uh, because nobody's going to want to hang out with him. But I don't know about that. His supporters will still want to hang out with him. Yeah, I don't think he wants to hang out with them, though. <laughs> he won't have to hang out with his supporters anymore. Yeah. That's a pro. Uh, I'm just, I'm bored of this man. This lame duck period is just, like, incredibly boring. Um, and that's fine. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been a really long political year. I'm okay with it being boring for a little while. Yeah. Uh, but there is a reason we're taking two weeks off. I'm not. Yeah, I think we need it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only other election news that is anticipated to happen is the Electoral College is basically going to vote the day after we record this podcast. All 50 states and D.C. have already certified their election results. We know Joe Biden will win. And then Congress will come together on January 6th again to do more with the results. But Joe Biden won the election again. That's the story. He did it again. Oops, he did it again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And on that great impression that is absolutely being kept in the podcast let's move on to our main topic publishing norali and i both were english majors in college but we took very different routes uh i went on to do stuff in uh, social media management and eventually worked started working in politics and norali you worked in an independent bookshop and i believe you also had several internships in publishing that unfortunately did not lead to a full-time paid job shame on them i would have hired you yeah i do still get to get paid to read stuff though it's just not in publishing um uh yeah i had a couple of publicity internships in publishing one of them in a pretty large publishing company houghton mifflin harcourt um and yeah i So, like, all this news about publishing is just very real to me. So here's... So the the reason why it's in the news lately is a new New York Times study, which is based on the annual Lee and Lowe studies that they've been doing about diversity, um, has confirmed what we've known to be true for years. Diversity in publishing is a myth. The number uh, the New York Times is using is 5%. In that only 5% of books published in America since 1950 have been by people of color. Also in the news, um, there is a rumor of a massive merger between two of the big five publishing companies, Simon & Schuster, which is owned by CBS, and Penguin Random House, which is owned by the German company Bertelsmann 
which is a massive, massive company that no one's ever heard of unless you have applied for a job at PRH. Um, and also uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, where I used to work, is up for sale. I don't think there have been any buyers of this publishing company yet. Basically, publishing isn't a very profitable industry, even though it's extremely important. Um, so uh, CBS doesn't want Simon & Schuster anymore. And Penguin Random House is more than willing to take more of that company. And um, if you're not into publishing, um, you might remember Penguin and Random House as two different companies, but they merged in like late 2000s, I think. I don't know when. But yeah, that was another big merger. Um, and yeah. Also... Third reason why it's in the news, the New York Post reported that Kellyanne Conway got a seven-figure book deal for her book. She received over a million dollars in an advance for a book about her time in the, in the Trump administration. Um, when I found this out, I quoted a drill tweet. Someone who is good at economics helped me budget this. My family is dying. There's certainly been, like, a lot going on in publishing this year, especially mm -hmm. um, between the realization that even as more people of color are getting published, they're still so in the minority, uh, despite the people complaining about black people existing on Twitter, uh, white people still dominate this industry and several others. Uh, we have, you know, the threats of monopolies emerging again. And of mm -hmm. course, I expect Kellyanne Conway is just the first of several terrible people, uh, fascists even, who will be getting a book deal out of this horrible work that they've done over the past several years. And we should put a pin on the book deal stuff, because oh, we're gonna talk about it. But um, first, the stuff about the mergers. Penguin Random House has the largest market share of any publishing company, especially in America, but worldwide. They have offices around the world um, and publish in the English language around the world in addition to other languages. Um, and as with most retail industries, Amazon has the largest market share of any book retailer, and now they're also in publishing a bit. And they obviously have the largest market share of audiobook retail, because Audible exists. Um, the more one company wields power over, an in power over an industry, the less likely it is that we will get interesting, diverse stories, because um, when one company, because it's just one company, you can't tell, it's very difficult to tell different stories when it's all under one company that may want to um, push a certain narrative. A monopoly is the result of aggressive capitalism that seeks to destroy all competition, but also it is the antithesis of the idea of capitalism, where there should be a marketplace of ideas, and we should have choices, and there's an invisible hand moving things around. None of that works in monopolies. Like, I'm not a strong capitalist, but I know enough about economics to understand that it doesn't work. And I also understand that about half of the books on my bookshelf 
even if they don't have a little tiny penguin waving at me, having a nice little logo there, they're very often published by a subsidiary of Penguin Random House because they somehow took up the entire market share of books I like. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so within publishing, there's this thing called imprints. So Penguin Random House has imprints, um, which are not subsidiaries of the company. They are still, like, very much part of the company itself. But they do different kinds of branding. Like, uh, Penguin will have a contemporary young adult imprint. They will have a... um, like a fantasy imprint. They'll do different imprints so they can tell different types of stories. Um, however, every single time we've seen a black imprint or an imprint dedicated to telling diverse stories, we've seen the people hired for that imprint quickly leave. We've seen the imprint fold because not enough uh, money was given to that imprint and to, you know, survive. Um, and basically these, creating these imprints about, like, telling black stories or telling, you know, queer stories or whatever, they're just very shallow, they're incredibly shallow ways to, um, you know, they're, they're, they're gestures to show that like, look, we're doing something about the problem of diversity in publishing. And then, like, five years down the line, you'll no longer see books with that imprint logo on the spine. Like, yeah, it, it's just so normalized. Yeah, it kind of feels like trying to treat, like, a broken leg with a Band-Aid. It's not gonna work. No. Um... Yeah, and the New York Times article discussing this talks about how when Toni Morrison was in publishing and was an editor, they published, um, let me see. So, three, so during Toni Morrison's tenure at Random House, this is when it was just Random House back in the day, 3.3% uh, of the books were written by black people when she left um only two were written by black authors in the six years after she left beloved which is by tony morrison and sarah phillips by andrea lee so yeah <laughs> when you you don't support the black people you've hired or the just the people of color in general that you've hired when you don't actively look for more people of color within publishing to work on these things. They won't happen. I've very often been the only uh, person of color in a meeting or the only person of color in a room or even a company. And you know what? It sucks. You get burnt out real fast Yeah. from trying to solve all of these systemic issues that everyone expects you to have a solution for and an answer to without uh, anyone else contributing in a meaningful way to looking for those solutions or fixing the systemic problems of, hey, maybe we should hire more than, uh, more than one non-white person. That might be a good idea. 
Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why I have chosen to stay at my current job, even though it's not in publishing and it's not in the field I want to be in, is because it's actually diverse and I'm not, I'm not the only person of color in the room. I don't have the darkest color skin in the room. Like, it's... Like, when I started working at the job I currently have, I it blew my mind how much easier everything was just because I wasn't the only person of color in the office. At the end of the New York Times article, uh, they talk about this source of hope. Uh, they write, the bottom rungs of publishing are also a source of hope. When Miss Brown started at Doubleday in 1967, she was the only black intern in her year's cohort. In 2019, almost half of all publishing interns identified as people of color. Whether those interns grow into careers like Miss Trotman's or Miss Brown's will depend on publishers' continued willingness to hire, promote, and listen to people who they have historically sidelined. Our data suggests that progress toward diversity can be as short-lived as a single editor's tenure. Um, I was one of those those interns. In that specific 2019 people of color interns, I was one of them. And um, as, as, as I've said, I no longer work in publishing. Um, and I, working there was a great experience overall. I learned a lot. I felt supported by the people who were my superiors. However, I wasn't hired full time even though there were no complaints against me. There wasn't any, um, I was told I was good at my job. I was told I was great at my job, you know? And when that happens as an intern, you know, just out of college or I was, I was like a year or so out of college and I had experience working at a bookstore and I knew books really well. Um, you think like this will turn into something full time. That didn't happen. And every single one of my superiors, from my direct superior, the publicist, to, you know, the vice president of publicity in that company, were all white. Yeah, this, this also fails to acknowledge that every single year there are far more internships available, some of which are still unpaid, uh, mm -hmm. several of which that are still unpaid, um, but there aren't as many entry-level positions available. So there's not a pipeline of talent. There is... There are three interns competing for one spot, and those three interns are also competing against interns at other companies who are applying for the same job, and it's also competing against past interns who want to get back into publishing, and it's competing against the people who have just finished a publishing course like the one at Columbia or the one at NYU who want to get into publishing. To use a nature analogy, you know how salmon swim, like, upstream and can leap up waterfalls and, like, go against the uh, current of a river? Mm-hmm. There's, like, a billion salmon just at the bottom of, a, like, a 50-foot waterfall. Yeah. And they are not getting picked up. There's so much talent in publishing. Like, I'm not even saying, like... I mean, obviously, I want to get back into publishing and I want to be hired, but I'm not even saying I'm the best person for every job ever. You know, I'm not saying, like, 
I personally deserved a job or something like that. I'm saying every single person above me was white. And, like, they are just automatically more likely to support someone who looks more like them. Um... Yeah, and then there was that one time I had to d- explain Twitter discourse as an intern in 2019. So first, I have two questions. Um, what was the Twitter discourse, and who were you explaining it to? So the Twitter discourse was stupid Twitter discourse. Um, that should not have been brought up in a meeting at the job I was at. It didn't have anything to do with publishing discourse or anything like that. It was... Do you remember the Grammys? Do you remember when award shows were, like, a thing um, that, like, had big crowds and, like, people would go to and stuff? Yeah, no, I'm Um, familiar with the concept. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, at this specific award show, I think it was the Grammys, um, Jennifer Lopez was chosen to perform a tribute to Motown. And people on Twitter, mostly black people, mostly black people who were familiar with the genre um didn't like that because jennifer lopez is a pop star and is not black and um can't sing motown music (laughs) like that's that was the extent of of the discourse it was like look at all of the people in the audience who could have done this infinitely better the vice president of publicity at this company um, decides to bring it up in a room full of white people, another Asian intern, and me. Fun. <laughs> so, and she was like, I don't understand why people are complaining about this. Like, people just can't, people are offended by everything. It was that sort of conversation. Um, and I, I mean, I have a podcast. I like to talk. <laughs> and i am on twitter way too much um so i was like well i like i was an intern having to speak to the vice president at this company and no one else said anything and i was like well here's why people were annoyed by this like There are so many other people in that audience who are more talented at this specific genre and would have done a significantly better tribute to Motown, and Motown is specifically a black genre. Um, So, you know, that, like, I basically explained why people were actually offended by this, and it wasn't just, like, people are offended by everything these days. Like, no, there was a reason for it, even if I think it was, like, frivolous discourse that everyone forgot about a week later. Um... And, but the really, the really irritating thing about that moment was not that I piped up and, you know, was my obnoxious self explaining Twitter discourse. Um, It was after the fact, after the meeting was over, because we had moved on and, like, did, you know, our publicity meeting and whatever. It was the fact that afterwards, two of my superiors talked to me and were like, you know, that was really important that you said something. I'm really glad you said something. And it shouldn't be the job of an intern to say something. 
it shouldn't when when those two people were right there and knew the same things I did and were white. It shouldn't have been my job. And that's the kind of labor, that's a, that was a small thing, but that's the kind of labor a person of color is forced to do every single day when they are surrounded by white people at work. When you are lucky enough to be in charge of people, um, that I believe that means that those people are also entitled to your protection um, and that you are supposed to be, you know, opening doors for them, helping them out, uh, stopping people from hurting them. And that very much so means, uh, as someone who can pass as white, I am have to be the person that, like, says the first thing um, when someone says something racist, because I don't count on the actual white people to do it. <laughs> uh, which shouldn't which shouldn't be the case either. Yeah. Is I have an enormous amount of privilege because I can pass as white and because I am Asian when I am angry. Uh people don't see that as a threatening thing. They should see it as a threatening thing. I'm very threatening, <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> You just threatened the entirety of the Pennsylvania Republican Party. We know you're threatening. Right? <laughs> I'm so good at it. <laughs> but because I have that privilege, uh, because my words aren't often taken out of that context, I try to protect the people with less power than me and make sure that they have the ability to move up and get to be the next round of people having those conversations. And eventually, hopefully, things get better. But it shouldn't be my job. It definitely shouldn't be the intern's job. It should be the head of the company making sure that that company culture isn't designed to hurt people. And the company culture protects people of color that work there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the thing about publishing and why it's so white. It's because even when you hire talent that is, you know, even when you hire people of color, you drive them away by A, not paying them enough because publishing doesn't pay shit, um, and B, all of this, by not protecting them. Um, and also doing things like what they pulled with the book written by a white lady about Mexican refugees. Um, oh, God. I don't want to talk about wire. that. Yeah. yeah. Let's just but move you, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, like, that's the kind of shit they always pull. Yeah. And they think that's okay. And then they wonder why they can't retain black talent. Or talent of people of color. Let's talk for a little bit about the ways that we see diversity in publishing because as someone who's not working in publishing who isn't really behind the scenes but who does love books my struggle is finding people of color to support uh specifically black authors and uh, south asian authors because i want to i like their books and there's not very many of them published um, 
But I also understand that that is the most public facing part of it. And there's still a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. So what is, what is happening with, um, I think we briefly discussed on the podcast several months ago, back in June, um, the hashtag publishing paid me. So could you please remind us what that is and what it means? So publishing paid me was a hashtag started by, um, L.L. McKinney, who wrote uh, A Blade So Black, which is a really cool young adult take on Alice in Wonderland with a black uh, female main character. Um, She started this hashtag because uh, she realized that she her advances were not the same as the advances of her um, white peers. Um, So basically publishing paid me is when authors finally posted the the numbers of their advances um of their book deals um and it showed the disparity between what white white authors and people of color and specifically black authors were paid while an advance is not everything in a book deal the fact that a black female author who won multiple national book awards was paid less than a white man who had never been published in his life is very, very telling. Um, and that's another way um, people of color are driven out of publishing. Um, I want to make a living writing. Like, that's my goal in life. That has been my goal in life since I was like five years old. But I am well aware that is not a tenable goal for me because I will never be paid enough to live off of my writing the same way a white author who is writing the same as me would. Um, And it's the same with publishing. Um, In publishing, you are not paid enough to make a living until you are at a fairly high rung in publishing. Um, So you have to have the privilege of money in your bank, of your parents' money, of whoever's money already in order to survive in publishing. Um, And yeah, money is a massive factor into... Like, this isn't discussed in the New York Times article, and I honestly think it was a massive oversight... Money is the reason, is one of the biggest reasons why people of color don't stay in publishing, whether it's writing, whether it's um, being on the editorial side or the marketing side or whatever. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The advances are extremely unfair because um, the disparity is just wild. and on the internal side of publishing, it's unfair because of the amount of pri- privilege many, many white people have to stay in the publishing industry when people of color cannot. Even if uh, there are people who are trying to work from within the system, even if there are people of color who you know have a wealthy family or um, a spouse that has a good income or finds a way to make all of this work, um, or, you know, just nice white people <laughs> who who want to solve these, like, big systematic intensive problems 
we're still fighting against the history of publishing and living within a society. A white supremacist society, because we are fighting us all of history. Uh, there are more books being published by black authors now than there were in 1950. That is objectively true. But that doesn't mean it magically got better. Those were very, very hard-fought wins to get to 5% of books since 1950 being published by black authors, when black people make up far more than 5% of the world population and also the U.S. population. So it's just... It's partially just a consequence of living within a white supremacist society, but I know there's more to it than that. Yeah, it's also on purpose. The, because the because publishing companies are so white, um, the stories being told are catered to a white audience. Because people of color are pushed out of publishing at every opportunity possible, um, white people make the decisions on what black stories are being told. Um, an acquisitions editor uh, was once quoted as asking, do we need Angie Thomas if we have Jason Reynolds? Um, the only thing Angie Thomas and Jason Reynolds have in common is that they both write young adult fiction uh, that have black main characters. I read Angie Thomas's books, and I read some of Jason Reynolds' uh, work. Despite writing, you know, black young adult fiction, they have very little in common. They have two completely different styles of writing. They have very different approaches to their writing. Uh, personally, I think Angie Thomas is a lot more character-based uh, in her work. It has a v also kind of writing for a different audience, um, particularly because Angie Thomas also centers the stories of black women. Yeah. Uh... But I still think we need both. I do like Angie Thomas's books more. Just gonna say that. <laughs> I, li I like her. Uh, but I still think we need both authors. And this would absolutely never be a question that got asked is... Um, I don't know. Do we really need Hank Green books if we have John Green? <laughs> and they're, they're brothers. They're brothers. <laughs> But not only do they, they have more in common than Angie Thomas and Jason Reynolds, they have they have genetic code in common. But honestly, their writing has about as much in common. Hank knows how to write a plot. <laughs> Roasted. This is a John Green roast podcast now. No, we're, we love John Green here. But um, no. Can you imagine if Angie Thomas uh, didn't get the Hate You Give published? Like that was that's such an important book. It's such a good book. It's an excellent book. It's wild. It allow it allows so many people to read outside of themselves. Like that book specifically is very accessible to a lot of people who don't like reading. And um it talks about things a lot of other young adult books don't. It like I don't see a lot of young adult books that like deliberately reference hip hop, you know, when that's all, you know, kids listen to these days. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a book in fiction reference the Black Panthers as a relatively positive thing. Yeah. 
like it's these are important stories and there is mm-hmm. absolutely no way they would be asking that about two white authors who wrote such different stories or even how many stories about white girls are there how how many stories about white girls have been published in 2020 like it's just it's a lot it's a lot um yeah and i also want to talk about again like this just shows like these are the people who are determining what stories are being told um and angie thomas is amazing and her book is amazing and everyone should read it but there is this fetishization of certain types of narratives that are told by black people and it is all tragedy white editors love black tragedy um and that's something that jason reynolds's books and angie thomas's books do have in common um and that's what a lot of books about black people have in common a lot of books that have been published by big five companies about the black experience are about black tragedy and not about black joy yeah. And there's a reason why The Hate You Give is still on bestseller lists, while Angie Thomas's second book, which does not involve death, um, isn't. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this obsession with the history of black culture in America, specifically, like, Martin Luther King um that I don't know one I tried to build a shelf of diverse books when I was working at the bookstore and it was hard for me to find books that were about black people and weren't sad that wouldn't make you cry Mm -hmm. um Yeah, and the reason why this is the case is because white people are choosing what stories are being told. Um, White people love Indian American rom-com books, which is why we see so many Indian American rom-com books. We don't see, you know, an Indian American spy novel or anything, even though I'm sure there's an author out there who's written one who wants to publish it. You know, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of talent that we have seen again and again throughout so many things um, about so much of the publishing industry. And to a certain extent, as readers, we get to decide what exists. And I would love more books about Black Joy. Uh, I just, mm-hmm. I think it's delightful. If you liked the new prom movie on a Netflix based off of the uh, Tony-nominated, maybe not Tony-winning musical, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, then you know what you should read. You should see Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson, which is a wonderful yes. book. 
about a black girl running for prom queen who is also queer. And it's not that that book isn't without pain or suffering or struggle. Every, every book it has to have conflict in it. Yeah. That's not... I'm not arguing against having conflict. Yeah. I'm arguing for more... More. <laughs> Basically, more stories. Yeah. I want... Like, who doesn't love a prom story, you know? It's fun. It's nice. And I want it, more stories about teenagers having fun, especially black teenagers. Yeah. Um... And this, and, and You Should See Me in a Crown does not have James Corden, <laughs> which is a plus. We have an opportunity as readers. Um, this is how we can act. Uh, we can read outside of ourselves and our own experiences and pick up books that show Black joy. We can support uh, Muslim authors. For me personally, that's something I'm hoping to get into uh, more next year to read more books from Muslim authors and about the Muslim experience. You should read Hannah Wars if you haven't already. I have! It was so good! <laughs> I loved it so much! <laughs> um, um, but I'm gonna be honest, there are only so many uh, diverse books that I can read because the publishing industry isn't exactly keeping up with my pace of reading when it comes to publishing these diverse books. Yeah. So um, the second way you can act is to support people of color and queer people in every step of publishing, from going to a Black or queer-owned bookstore. Um, there are so many of them. Uh, to buy books. Uh, to buying books that are by people of color and aren't by white writers writing about people of color, which is a thing now more than ever. I, I hate it. Um, <laughs> to uh, supporting independent presses, to supporting self-published writers, because there are so many queer people and people of color who are self-publishing because they they've been pushed out of the publishing industry, the mainstream publishing industry. Um, and you can, and one great way to support, uh, independent, uh, black and queer owned bookstores is to buy from our little bookshop, bookshop.org slash shop slash on your left pod. And we have a bunch of curated lists on great books you can get. And all of our lists are very diverse because, you know, we're two queer Asian Americans who read a lot. Um, so, uh, yeah, just support outside of Amazon if you can. If you can't, support people who aren't... Just support people who aren't supported by the mainstream, I think. is Give your money to people who aren't being supported by the entire world. Uh, if you, like me, can't afford to buy all of the books that you want to read, you can also request diverse books from your local library. Um, libraries and librarians love hearing about what you would like to take out, uh, especially because it lets them know what books to order. They will happily take your book request into account when deciding which books to purchase because they also have a budget and they want to provide services to their community. My library growing up was so great about getting in books that I wanted to read. Um, 
like all I had to do was tell them the, the title and the author if it was a specific book and they would order it for me. And if I wanted recommendations about a specific thing, they would go through the effort of finding books that were specific, were specifically to my tastes. Librarians are there for a reason. Ask them for help. Ask them for recommendations. Um, ask book uh, people who work at bookshops for recommendations. You know, ask us. I love talking about books. <laughs> I know you do too. I truly do. It is basically the only social media thing you could count on me for is a book recommendation a day. <laughs> because I schedule those tweets in advance because sometimes I read three books in a day. I love that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a slower reader than you, but I talk a lot about the books that I love. Also, uh, if you're a writer um, and you are, you know working on your query letter or, you know, finishing up your book or whatever, look for agents who have been actively supporting people of color or look for agents who are people of color and do all of the research you can before signing a deal. Book Twitter is great for this. Um, I, follow, I follow a lot of people on Twitter. And one of the reasons why I do is because I get so much information from this um, that, like, you wouldn't even necessarily get from paying a publisher's marketplace, you know, monthly fee, which they just jacked up the prices and, like, don't let you sign on on multiple devices. So, um, which is another way POC are pushed out of publishing. <laughs> There's so much. Um, but uh, I know people like Beth Philan, who is an Asian-American agent who... Um, does uh, the diverse pitch uh, Twitter thing. Um, she has her DMs open. A lot of people have their DMs open if you have specific questions. Um, I have a spreadsheet of people I want to query to and like, I have made plans and done research for all of this, even though I haven't finished writing a book yet. Um, do all the research you can. Just ask questions, form a community of people of color around you to talk to about this stuff. There are so many authors of color and so many agents and so many people in publishing who want to talk about all of this. And that community is so important for us. And also one important thing you can do is to support any antitrust legislation because it shouldn't be Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster, all one company. You just... In your gut, the name feels wrong. Would it be... it? So, Penguin Random House is just, like, known as PRH, so it, would it be PRHSS? Purse. 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 <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just... Would that be the, the initialism for it? We need better than this. Again, the people who choose what stories are told are part of these massive companies, and we don't want these massive companies to be the only ones in charge. We don't want them to be the arbiters of the canon, of the stories that are told that people will look, people in the future will look back on the stories published today as literary canon. We want the real stories being told. We don't want just a white narrative or the narrative that white people want to 
see and read and hear. So we need more publishing companies. In another year or two, stories about what happened during the COVID-19 crisis are going to come out. They just are. Mm-hmm. Um, people will stir their experiences. There's already like a short story anthology about people spending, I think, Ramadan uh, in quarantine. That came out a few months ago. These stories are happening. They're coming out. And I just don't want to read 50 identical stories about two white kids who are sad because they can't see each other anymore even though they're deeply in love because of the virus. Someone's gonna write them. But I don't need to read all of them. Please give me some options. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some good things. We have a very interesting antitrust case happening right now. Uh, Facebook was sued by 48 states and the FTC for uh, breaking several antitrust laws um, by basically buying up their competition and taking over the market share of the internet. Mm-hmm. So feel free to support that whole lawsuit. Uh, tell your attorney generals if you they are supporting this uh, case that they're and doing more a good likely, job. It's, it's more likely that they are than are not because it's 48 states. Yeah. Out of 50. Out of 50. Oh man, that is 96% of the country. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and yeah, I think it's good news that Facebook is being sued. They ruined Instagram for me. Is this like the first antitrust legislation we're seeing in, since like the 90s? Like so the, mean, first, the first lawsuit? The first big lawsuit? Not the first it, it's probably the first one in the tech sector. The first huge one since Microsoft installed yeah, that, Internet Explorer on all of our yeah, stuff. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I was thinking of the Microsoft one. It's the first in a while, and it's the first tech one in a very, very long time. Yeah. There's definitely been other ones that weren't tech ones, but... Yeah. Um, You're up next, Disney. <laughs> looking at you. Looking at you, Mouse. Oh my god, did you see... Like, all... You saw all of the announcements, right? For all of the movies and the stuff coming out. And I was just like, Disney owns everything. So much. They own way too much. Support (laughs) antitrust uh, lawsuits, legislation. Make sure that, you know, we have a society with differing ideas and viewpoints and a diverse marketplace of ideas instead of like five dudes from three companies. Our next piece of good news is something that we started with and I just wanted to say once again and celebrate the fact that people have started getting vaccinated for COVID-19. By the time that this episode goes up, it is more than likely that the first people in the United States will have gotten their COVID-19 vaccinations. And it is just a weight lifted off of my heart it's so beautiful i'm just i'm so glad there is good things happening in this world we uh we have a long way to go but i am just so so happy and relieved for all of the lives that are going to be saved because of the work that we've done and the work that we're still doing with the covid19 vaccine please stay home if you can 
Please be careful. Please wear masks. Do all of the good things. Finally, our last piece of good news. Nirali, what did Taylor Swift yes. do this week? On the morning of December 10th, uh, at 8.50 a.m., just as I was about to wake up, my sister knocks on my door and is like, Taylor Swift is releasing another album tonight, and I am still half dead to the world. I roll over. I go, she's insane. And then I fall back asleep for another 10 minutes. <laughs> that is how I found out about Evermore coming out, which is Taylor Swift's latest album, which she released that night at midnight on December 11th. And it is so, so good. It is, it's just, it's so good. It's a sister album to Folklore. That's what Taylor is calling it. And um, she's back with Jack Antonoff and Aaron Dessner of The National. And um, there's some amazing collaborations on this album. The song with Haim. If you've ever thought, ever in your lifetime, I hate men, listen to this song. Um, there is a song called Coney Island, which is mine. There's a song called Dorothea, which is mine. And I love to death. Um, and I also felt like that was a personal attack on me because I'm writing a character named Dorothy right now. And it's a whole thing. Um, let's, let's, see, let's, let's talk more about Taylor Swift. It's also her birthday, the day we're recording this. And she just released a beautiful set of earrings and a ring uh, to sell that I'm not getting because I've spent way too much money on this woman this year. Um, like I haven't spent a lot of the money this year because I'm back to living with my parents and I'm not paying rent right now. Um, so most of the money I've spent has been on like food and Taylor Swift. Um, the song called Marjorie made me cry, um, which is about Taylor Swift's grandmother. Um, happiness is very sad. Tolerated is very sad. Gold Rush is great. Cowboy Like Me is so beautiful and romantic, and it features vocals by one of the Mumfords of Mumford and Sons. It's just so good. It's so beautiful and good. Uh, I have not listened to the album yet, but congratulations to Taylor Swift for locking up her Grammy nomination for next year early. Unfortunately, our mango fact is not good news, uh, which... Is extra unfortunate because mango facts are usually the best news of the day. Uh, unfortunately, there are fewer than expected Spanish mangoes this year, production levels being lower than in 2019, um, mainly due to poor weather conditions in Spain, uh, including a lot of rain in April, and then a large heat wave in August, resulting in several kilograms being lost of mangoes. Oh dear. That is bad. So, um, support the Green New Deal, everyone. Yeah, let's uh, fix climate change so that I can eat mangoes. It's not the biggest problem in the world, but... It no, is a actually, problem. It might be the biggest problem in the world. Just not the part where it affects me personally. Yeah, I mean, climate change is the, the biggest problem in the world after, you know, 
we fix COVID. Therefore, mangoes are the most important problem in the world. The lack yeah. thereof. Yeah. I know what we're focusing on next year, everyone. <laughs> mangoes. Only mangoes. Thanks so much, for, everyone, for listening to this episode. You can find me online at Katrina Ames on Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitch. Where can we find you, Nerali? You can find me at Firewood Sparkler on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube. Um, and you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash onyourleftpod. Uh, if you want to, you know, give us a little, a little Christmas surprise in our inboxes, that would be more than welcome. Uh, patreon.com slash on your left pod this has been the on your left pod all about the publishing industry and if you want another way to support us you can go to bookshop.org slash shop slash on your left pod so we can fight the problem and support us paying rent and eating food (laughs) Uh, we will be back again in january of 2021 I hope everyone has a lovely and safe holiday. Um, Happy Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. Happy Solstice. All of the things. I hope they're happy and lovely.